Okay, we are live. Anthony Riv Rivera, what is up, my friend? Hey, we're live, pal. Hey, <laughs> thanks for having me, Josh. Known you for a long time and uh, looking forward to having this conversation with you. Yeah, dude, this is what I love. This is what I love about podcasting. Like, I've had some really cool podcasts so far. I've got to talk about all sorts of cool things, like a guy who's an expert in near-death experiences and, you know, guys, you know, in religion. You said experiences? Yeah, like yeah. More than one? <laughs> well, he's a, he was an expert in near-death experience, so he's done a lot of study on it. And uh, Oh, gotcha, gotcha. He didn't okay. personally have any, but but it was it was cool to talk to those people and, and having an opportunity to, like, I interviewed Sean Kanan, who played Mike Barnes on Cobra Kai and Karate Kid 3, and, like, all these different Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and so it's been fun. Uh, but these are my favorite ones where I get to like sit there and talk with my friends about their story. And because I think I've known you now probably like almost 15 years. Yeah, you know me since I was green green. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was funny because like you were the type of guy who like I saw, you know, I, I used you when I was doing wrestling shows. I used you as a, as a wrestler a bunch of times and you were still green. And uh, and then you've just over the years, it's been so much fun to watch you put it all together you know, and seeing you kind of have your ups and downs in the time I've known you, I'm really excited to have this conversation and really just kind of dive, in, dive into who the Riv really is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, I'm looking forward to it because maybe having this conversation will help me uh, figure out even further who the Riv is. So <laughs> that's good, man. It's been like I said, it's been fun to watch you figure out the different gimmicks and do the different things and watch you become just a, a phenomenal professional wrestler. Like just, oh, thank you. it's been great to watch. And so let's just dive right in and talk about your background. Tell me about growing up, uh, you know, mother, father, siblings, what's your makeup like? Uh, okay. So I was born in Sacramento, California, all the way back in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> um, and my mom was 17, my dad was 18. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I am a product of teen romance. Um, and what's what's weird is like, uh, my pop started as like a, uh, like he was super like stoned all the time and he was delivering pizzas when I was like young, young. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know, I don't know what happened exactly. Something happened and he like, really became like a straight arrow big time straight arrow mm -hmm. um, my mom's more of like a free spirit type and my dad kind of became like a uh uh we used to joke around he was like a terminator because he'd really say stuff like like affirmative like, <laughs> you know to confirm you know this. <laughs> like, yeah um he just became really just like uh black and white yeah so, yeah when, um, when did he when did that change um, probably when I was probably like eight or nine. Okay. And, uh, when I started school, started school when I was three years old, the preschool, my parents had me in private Christian school from <laughs> the time I was in preschool all the way till middle school. Wow. Nice. Yeah. It's funny. The reason I ask is because I, my dad was like that too. My dad was pretty free spirited. He, he was Jewish. And then when I was four, he got baptized as a Mormon, but he didn't, I mean, he kind of was in and out of actually practicing and kind of lived a party lifestyle himself 
for a while and then he really just he just changed you know he went he, he cleaned himself up probably when i was about 17 18 and then uh -huh. just completely different person than he ever was and it's just it's it's just so interesting it's just another example of it's never too late to change you know what i mean yeah yeah exactly yeah now um your mom and dad uh you know, teenage romance, were they together? Were they ever married? Were they not? How did that uh, work? Never married. So technically my last name is, you know, Rivera Smith. My last, oh. my dad's last name is Smith. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just go by my mom's name because uh, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, but was your dad always kind of a part of your life? Or did he yeah. kind of, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, he, he was there. Um, I would live with my mom. Um, and then I would go to my dad's on the weekends, um, you know, unless I was doing something with other family members and stuff. Um, you know, we, we, I don't want to say like we were super poor. I always had like a, a Nintendo or a Sega. We always had food. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, we lived in like South Sac, Florin Road. Um, Little League Airport area, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, those, you, those people who aren't from Sacramento area, that's the rougher area. South Sac is, I lived, uh, when I was in law school, I ended up moving to right, right on the border, like right off of the Florham Road exit of I-5, like Land uh -huh. Park. Like I was oh, like, yeah, right yeah. Border of Land Park and Meadowview. So it was, uh, so yeah, I'm familiar with the area pretty well. That's where my school was, bro, was Meadowview. That's where I went to school. But oh, I mean, yeah. It was a private Christian school. Um, <laughs> but it, it was in a black neighborhood. I, uh, all my friends were black. I didn't, I didn't have, honestly, don't think I had like a close white friend. So I was in the military. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's yeah, really. How do you, how do you think that changed your, um, your, I guess, worldview? Um, growing up like that, I can sympathize with people's struggles a lot more. I don't know. Cause I, I'm not struggling now, but I don't, I don't undermine anybody's, mm. you know, struggles at all. Cause you know, I don't always like to, uh, you know, not have stuff <laughs> that you would like to have. And, um, yeah. So, so that's a rougher neighborhood when you were a kid. I mean, were you getting into trouble or were you kind of, I mean, you, you have a, by the way, I've met your mom a few times and <laughs> she's a great, your mom is awesome. I don't know if I've ever met your dad. Um, nah, he doesn't really come to shows. Okay. Uh, yeah. But your mom is awesome. Yeah. She's great. Uh, my dad's great too. He's just kind of, um, he has his uh, new family now. Mm. Uh, that's a weird way of putting it. But I mean, he, he got remarried after I went off to the military um you know he met somebody and he married her and he has two new kids now so he's okay. got all that going on do you ever get together with them or, or anything like uh, that yeah yeah definitely there's there's no like weirdness or anything there i go over there for christmas and stuff but um as you know i'm hardly in sacramento so right right you're you're <laughs> uh, you're still based in vegas now right yeah totally yeah. I, and i love it out here um i mean i bought a home out here just recently so yeah, and that's awesome. We're going to talk about that because that's quite the come up story. So, now, now, do you have uh, siblings other than your half siblings? Yeah, um, yeah. When I was ten years old, uh, my mom was seeing somebody, and uh, she ended up pregnant with my sister, 
And then my mom and dad got back together, and my dad ended up raising my sister. Wow. And then they broke up again when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's interesting. Wow. How was that like growing up? Was that kind of confusing or what? Were it was, like, for me, it was great because I was, you know, I remember when my parents were actually together. You know, they, sure. they broke up when I was like three or four years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's for like my parents to finally get back together because that was because my mom even got married sometime in between there when I was like seven years old. And then she got divorced too. So, um, yeah, when my parents got back together, I was stoked, you know, it was, it was great. Um, but then, yeah, they ended up uh, splitting up. And things were kind of awkward in the house for a minute, like kind of like lived in seven bedrooms type thing for like a month before we actually like moved down and stuff, so. Wow, okay. So uh, how was that for your sister? So your, you said your sister is raised by your dad. Did they still have a good relationship and all that too? Yeah, totally. Uh, my 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 dad is my sister's dad like my my sister doesn't really even um anyway uh yeah for sure my my dad is my sister's dad and she acknowledges him as so that's awesome it's great because she she will often tell me how great he is and uh, how much she loves him and it, that's great i remember my dad telling me um when i was young he said he said you know hey uh, I did this because, you know, I, I not only do I love your sister, but I also did it to show you, like, if you wanted to ever do something like that, you know, it's okay to do stuff like that. No, oh, that's awesome. It's really cool yeah. when, you, when you see parents that are taking into account the effect that what they're doing is going to have on their kids, you know? Yeah. No, um, my dad is, he's a really smart guy. Uh, growing up, he was constantly reading and learning and he was always trying to teach me something, man, but I was such like a knucklehead when I was a kid and it was just wrestling. That was it. That was like what I was going to do. So I didn't want to hear, I don't want to like learn anything like that you've ever wanted to teach me. Cause it's like, yeah, whatever dad, I'm going to be wrestling. Like, <laughs> When did that start for you? My whole life. I've wanted to be a wrestler since as far back as I can remember. Oh, really? You know, that's yeah. funny. Cause I, I'm the same way, but the thing that was funny for me was I, when I was a kid, like young kid, like four, five years old, and I started going to wrestling matches with my aunt and my dad and different people. Um, I was like, no way I want to get in the ring with like some 500 pound Andre the Giant or something. I'll get smashed. And then when yeah. it finally, when I, they finally convinced me that it was fake, then I was like, well, I could totally do that then. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, it's all show, then like I could, I can do that. Yeah, and then that's what it was for me. So, do you just always remember wrestling? Be around? Who turned you on to that? Uh, my dad. My dad was a huge Macho Man fan when I was a kid, um, and he would take me to the whenever they went to Arc Arena in Sacramento. He'd take me, you know. So I got to see like Ultimate Warrior. I got to see Hogan versus Earthquake. I got oh. to see like some classic matches, you know. We were probably um, both at the same ones, dude. I remember Macho probably. Man. I remember probably. Hogan and Macho Man. They did a show. It was after WrestleMania five. They were doing the tour and Hogan and Macho Man showed up and they sold the place out. And then the very next month, they announced at the show that they were going to come back a month later and they were going to sell tickets that night. And they sold out the second show. And then I got chicken pox on the second show and couldn't go. No. Yeah. So bummed. Those are good times. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so uh, uh, who were your, one of the questions we 
that was asked, I always ask people, you know, before the podcast when announcer's coming on, if they have questions. One question that came through was, "Who are your wrestling influences?" Um. Okay, so my biggest wrestling influences, um, like I have a bunch, but my my top two for sure: Shawn Michaels and Undertaker. Oh, okay. Which is like cool for me because I got to kind of incorporate both into what I do now. You know. Nice. Got to be very flamboyant but kind of creepy at the same time right no that's cool man so yeah so um are you more of a would you consider yourself more of a, of a classic like 80s wrestling fan a 90s kind of attitude era fan where where do you kind of fall <clears throat> um as far as like entertainment value goes i think um attitude era probably like wins that one but as far as like work goes my favorite era for work is actually the ruthless aggression era Oh, okay. Um, I mean, we're talking Benoit, Eddie Guerrero, Matt Hardy, Rey Mysterio, Triple yeah, H, right. The Rock, Stone Cold was still in there. Um, yeah. Brock Lesnar was just getting a start. Like, there's so much good work in that era. Like, sure. WrestleMania 19, whew, there's the top that card, top to bottom, is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was a great card, man. That was the one where it was it was Angle and Brock at the main event, right? Yeah, yeah. Brock the shooting star press. I mean, you know, uh, Brock Lesnar landing on his his neck aside. The whole the whole yeah. show was pretty amazing. Yeah, and when he went up for that, I knew it was coming because I had seen the videos of him doing that in OVW. And I mean, uh, you could see him kind of stutter step before he, you know, he yeah. jumped. He like, realized. I think he realized that I could tell when he was watching or when I was watching it live. That he he could tell that Kurt was too far out. He it was, was pretty like, far out for a shooting star. Like, right. Yeah. He was like halfway through the ring. And I'm like, yeah, to do that. Yeah. That was crazy. Man, that was fun. So um you you mentioned we were talking off air. You actually started training when you were like 16. For two yeah. Months. Yeah. Um, I started training with a uh, big ugly and Flaco Loco at the Colonial Theater. Nice. Um what yeah, year was that? That was 2002 or three. Okay. I think two. And then I trained. Yeah, I trained until, uh, yeah, it was time for me to go to the military because I joined the military when I was 17. Man. So question, was that um, was that during the time? I remember they did one of their anniversary shows, and I went to the show. And the main event was like a four-way death match. And it was CJ and Luster and Beto Cruz and I want to say Mike Rain, maybe. Yeah, um, that was the Japanese death match. Uh, I actually was one of the – there was three refs in that match. I was one of them. I was one oh, of the yeah. outside refs for that match. That was insane. Like, that was that was some fucking crazy heavy shit for a 16-year-old man. <laughs> that was the first time I'd ever seen – this is – I saw – that was the one where I think CJ took the weed whacker. Yeah. He took a lot of shit in that match, actually. <laughs> yeah, I saw him get. You know, Luster was pelting him with the with the staples and with a staple gun. He had a staple gun and was stapling him all over the place. And he, he, he Luster bombed him off of the stage onto like some tubes that were just sitting on the concrete. Yeah, the tubes were meant to break his fall. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's I remember, my trainer though. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing that and being like, "That guy is insane." I just that's that's crazy. Yeah, I remember I went to go pick him up, and he was like, "Take me to the back." And I remember he was supposed to go over, 
I had no idea they were going to do the angle where, like, you know, you carry him out and he fucking comes back later and, you know, mm-hmm. kicks everyone's ass. Um, which actually, that it doesn't end up happening because I'll explain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I guess his hip is like fucked. He can't move. And he's like, take me to the back. And and I'm like, aren't you supposed to go over? Like, do you do you want me to pass a message to 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 any of the other guys in the match? You know, because like you said, it was a four way. He goes, take me the fucking back. <laughs> <laughs> so I drag his fucking because he can't use his legs. I drag him into the back. And I look at Flacco and I'm like, so who's going over now? And Flacco looks down at him and he goes, him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like shitty bricks because I feel like I need to like pass some messages and no one's telling me anything. So I go back out there and then you know, five minutes go by or whatever and CJ comes back out with a weed whacker like he's going to clear house and then he gets cut off and then Lester uses the weed whacker on him. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that was like I said, that was the first time I'd ever seen that because I I was on a mission for my church from 2000, 2002, all that FMW stuff. Like it was so funny because I, when I left, cause I trained with Ollie, uh, Oliver John did some backyard stuff from 99 to 2000. And then like I was on, I was involved with like the first three or four SPW shows at the colonial when uh, ugly hadn't gotten the book yet. So it was still, it was still rich Roby running the place. So I leave and I come back. And that's what I come back to. <laughs> it was like, what happened oh, while I was gone? <laughs> you know? And so, so, yeah, it was it was a fun time. But So you're there, and then you start training. Was was CJ the guy who was training you most, or was it Ugly? No, uh, at that time, it was Ugly and Flocko were the trainers. Um, okay. I was training underneath them. And then um, I didn't finish my training because I joined the military. I needed something to do because I graduated college. And... By that point, I had lived with my mom like throughout my whole childhood. And then the last few years of high school, I moved in with my dad. Mm. Teach me how to become a man, you know. Right. And uh, um, I moved in with him. And what was I talking about? <laughs> you're talking about you're talking about <laughs> going to the military. So you move in with your dad. And yeah, like what what is it that got you to go through the military? Uh, yeah, because he was like, uh, he was like, you know, when you turn 18, something needs to happen. You either need to write a check or move out. That's what, that's what he told me. Because <laughs> like I said, he was a fucking straightforward guy. Right. Um, so that was my plan. Was, I just joined the Navy because I was a big fan of Top Gun. You know? <laughs> really? That, was that what <laughs> I swear was? to God. I swear to God. I was like, I love Top Gun. Um, and I had wanted to be in the Navy like my whole childhood because of Top Gun. So. Nice. What was your initial plan? What we what did you want to do? That that was kind of always it. I always wanted to be a wrestler, and I always wanted to to be in the navy. Did you want to become like a a fighter pilot, or you just wanted to be in the navy? I I just wanted to be in the navy because um, yeah, I wanted the the college, and um, yeah, I just wanted. I, I don't know. Honestly, I was young and I was just like, hey, if I join the Navy, um, you know, I'll be financially taken care of mm-hmm. and um, I could party. <laughs> That's really <laughs> what I was thinking, man. And, it, you know, I was all like girl crazy at the time because I was 17. And I was like, you know, 
get that uniform. Yeah, I'm gonna do a port. It's gonna be awesome, and my life is gonna be great. And I'm gonna be a rock star, and like, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you, you you joined the Navy, and was it like a rude awakening when you got in there? Or how did that work? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I knew about like boot camp, and I knew that that was gonna be, you know, what boot camp is and all that good stuff. But then like. Nothing could have prepared me for what the fleet was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just like, um, so, okay. I don't want to completely shit on my Navy experience, but like, you know, when, when we're there in port, I was an OS, operation specialist. Our job is to radar navigation, you know, stuff like that, um, air radar. And so there's not much for us to do when we're in port. Mm -hmm. So when we're in port, it was just like a, a game of hurry up and look busy, like every day. Mm -hmm. And then when we were out to sea, it was six on, six off, 24 seven. Wow. So you, you don't actually get like a full eight hours of sleep ever, unless, uh, you know, unless we pull into port. Hmm. Uh, and where typically, so how much time do you spend on a ship versus in port? Um, so for, for like full, full deployments, like the full, like a, what's called a Westpac deployment, Western Pacific mm -hmm. deployment, um, you can be out there up to a month and a half before you pull into a port. So you're just like a zombie because you're working six on, six off this whole time. Mm -hmm. And then... You know, once you pull in the port, you just want to party. So you just, you're not sleeping the whole time. <laughs> How long are you in port for? Uh, sometimes they'll be in port for like two weeks. Mm -hmm. Usually it's just like five or six days. Okay. And how long did you do that for? For about like seven and a half months. What was crazy is we did a seven and a half, half month deployment, pulled in the port for a month two weeks of the ship went on leave the other two weeks or the excuse me the first half of the ship went on leave for two weeks and then the second half of the ship went on leave for two weeks and then we went to alaska for another month and a half wow. <laughs> canada wow. and then alaska because we were we were testing um some new air stuff and mm. i could disclose the secret information to you now that it's 2023 but we were testing uh drones now everyone uses fucking drones now. Right. <laughs> we were using them to spy on Somalian pirates like back in 2005 or six, <laughs> And now they're, you can buy them at, you know, radio flag. We're in Shack thing anymore. I guess Best Buy. Was. <laughs> yeah, right. The radio, for you young kids, Radio Shack is what Best Buy was before Best Buy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a lot smaller. So, so uh, no, but I mean, when you get out there, I mean, what is it like? I mean, what do you, what do you like out to see? Yeah. Like, oh man, it, it, it's, it's quite an experience because, um, you just get out there and there's just water, like as far as you can see. And, and like, it's the same shit every day, but sometimes the tide is like rough. Sometimes it's medium, sometimes it's chill. Um, but the night skies, I will never, ever, ever forget those night skies out to sea for sure. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty beautiful. Cause no, there's no light anywhere mm -hmm. to take away from the stars, so it's wow. just so 
much more vast and so much more depth than you can see in any city or like even any forest. Mm -hmm. So you got to imagine when you're out there, uh, especially when you're out there for seven and a half months, you and your, your crew get pretty close. Real close to what? Like just close to each other, just friendly. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, (laughs) um, (laughs) some people you do and some people you don't, you know, it's you know it's a mixed bag you're taking a lot of it's fucking reality show bro like i swear we could have you know you got people from all over the country coming together in like a melting pot and just like yeah it's it's wild (laughs) yeah and then uh so you I'm, i'm assuming i mean i know it's nothing like being in the army but i know like the closest thing i have to possibly being in the army would be like being uh on a mission for my church because it's you're just around each other all the time you yeah, know yeah there's no one else out there and there's no women or anything like that and you're out you know doing this work all the time and so some of my closest friends came out of that time just because we served a mission together you know what i mean and yeah. so you got to imagine I, it, that's the nth degree for someone who's been serving in the military yeah, I definitely, I have a couple homies that I still keep in contact with uh, that I served on that ship with. Because yeah. that's another thing too, you know, you make some some homies and you're all going through this bullshit together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you, and, uh, you're, food, you're, well, go ahead, sorry. I, didn't I was just going to say, and the food's terrible. Like, <laughs> uh, the food in the Army is way better than the food in the Navy. Like, okay. night so, and day. So did you transfer from the Navy to the Army and how does that work? Yeah, I did. Um, so we we were getting ready to go on a, our second deployment because, you know, I had already done a, a full West Westpac deployment mm-hmm. and we were gearing up to go on our second Westpac deployment. And the army came to our ship. They had everyone come out on the flight deck and they had said, hey, you know, like, uh, you know, your brother's in the army. We need some extra people. If anybody like wants to join, you get like a signing bonus and like. You know, it's your chance to like, you know, let's just give you the fire, the fire up speech and all that shit. And I was like, I'll fucking go. Like, I'm ready to get off this boat. Like, I hate it here. <laughs> uh, so what, where were they? Were they telling you, hey, we needed you to go? Because this is what years are this now? This was 06. Okay. And so what? I, I had went into like the army. I had transferred over. I, I had done what's called augmentation where you get augmented from the Navy into the army. So I wear an army uniform, but I'm wearing the Navy rank. Mm, okay. So uh, this is during the time where, uh, where are we at within the war on terror? The war on terror started in 2003 um, or anyway, in, at least in Iraq. And that's mm-hmm. where, I, where I was put. I was put at Cap Victory in Iraq when I switched over. Um, the process was, you know, they came to the boat. They asked who wanted to volunteer, volunteered, did all this paperwork and stuff, um, transferred over, uh, went to combat training in El Paso, Texas for a couple months. And then we did the ceremony where we got placed into the 101st Airborne. And then that was cool because they, like, took our – took their patches off and then placed it on our to like, you know, kind of like, um, you make us honorary uses basically. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) 
And so, uh, and the idea was when you were doing this augmentation, the idea was you were actually going to go serve in war. In yeah. Okay. Yeah. You were ready. To yeah. That's how bad, I'm telling you, Josh, that's how bad I hated being on the boat. I was like, I would rather be out there. Like, I hate it here. <laughs> what is it that you hated? The feeling of not progressing or not doing anything. The everyday, because out to sea, it was just like you're just standing watch, six on, six off, and you just become a zombie. You know, I try to like eat as good as I can, go downstairs to hit the gym. You can't really like work out as hard as you want to because the ground is doing this, you know, while you're trying to get workout in. Right. Um, living close in close quarters with assholes that you don't like. Right. Um, it, it it's kind of similar to jail, <laughs> and the food was horrible. Um, and then yeah, when and that's out to sea, and then when we're in port, it's just like you better fucking look busy, and it's like I'm grabbing a a swab, and I'm it's like I can only swab the deck so much, right? You know, like, and it, it was just like this empty feeling of like I'm not doing anything, like <clears throat> I want to do something, like I want to and I was young, you wanted, like, full of fucking. You you wanted to find meaning in what you were doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, there's nothing more meaning than going off to war. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so you, yeah, you, uh, and my cousin influenced me because I had an older cousin that was an MP in Iraq, and um, the whole family was like, they were so proud of him, and like, I felt like the family was like, because I wasn't doing anything, I was just like on a boat, so mm. I was just like, man, I want to be talked about. Like, hero like how he is you know what I mean? so that, that was another like influence you know okay okay so you uh you do basic training you get inducted into the 101st airborne and uh and then you immediately deploy uh yeah pretty much um okay. i think they gave us like a few days to go home okay uh so yeah i had went home uh i was kind of like with the same girl from like age 14 to like this point so uh we we got like married real quick, just in case anything happened to me in Iraq, my wife can be taken care of for the rest of her life. You know? Right, right. So we had just like got married real quick in like a church office. Okay. With our minister. Wow. I didn't know you were married. Oh, but, really? Damn. Yeah, I didn't know that. So you got so married. I forget about it sometimes too. <laughs> How long were you married? Till I came back from Iraq. Oh wow! Okay, and then you're yeah, like, Never that was that was like a part of the struggle was was like that day to day life in Iraq, and then uh, and then my wife was like leaving me, like mm. you know, slowly but surely. Yeah, yeah, that's got to be rough, man. You um, so you go to you said what was the it was Camp Victory. Yes, Camp where's Victory. Camp, where's Camp Victory within Iraq? Um, it's actually around the uh, Saddam's main um, like compound actually oh, wow. okay. he had he had his own palace he had a palace he had like a like a long like a country club for him and his boys and then he had a um, he had a palace for his wives and then he had a palace for his hookers jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Man, so and, he was and, he a, and in the middle of the fucking desert, he had a man-made lake, like in the middle of it all. So it's like a lake, and then all these palaces were around it. 
Wow. And, then, and then around all that was our perimeter of what we, we took over. <laughs> how long after, so you were in there, how long after Saddam was captured? Um, what year did he get captured again? Was that like 2000? Uh, it had to have been like 2000, 2004. Was it, was it, I can't remember when they, no, when did they go into Iraq? When did they first go in? I, I think they got him. Um, I don't think we had got him yet. Oh, but he hadn't been, he, he wasn't, he hadn't been ca captured by the time you got there? No. Oh, wow. Okay. I think so. Okay. Oh, wait, wow. no. I went, I don't think so. Because um, I think it was 2008 where he got captured, and I was there in 06, 07. So. Okay. So when you're there, um, Someone's gonna, someone's gonna, if I have that wrong, someone's gonna fucking say you have the date wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Well, so I'd Google it, but I'm using my phone right now. I know. I was thinking about Googling it too, but it's fine. We can, we can just keep going. So, your uh, culture shock when you get there, what's it like? Uh, it's fucking hot. <laughs> uh, that's yeah uh they had brought us to kuwait to like train up a little bit just to like get used to the heat but it was just like bro every day it was just like i what's just funny because now i live in fucking las vegas but like <laughs> <laughs> every day it was just like having my hand on that doorknob like oh, i lost you all right you still you got me yeah i got you you're back yeah all right. Every day it just was like, man, you know, like when you open the the oven door. Yeah. Just like it was just like that every day. Just wow. Opening the door to like go outside, be like 115 outside. Wow. <sighs> Jeez. So, uh, you know, I remember hearing about these like, and maybe you could tell me if this is true, like these giant spiders. That that like. Camel that spiders. Yeah. You ever run into one of those? You know what? I heard a lot about the camel spiders. Never seen one. Really? I don't know if it's just like my living quarters or where I was at because, um, but you know, the war on terror started over there in 2003 and I got there in 07. So by the time I got there, there was already like, um, like mobile trailers just kind of set up for like, um, for living quarters and stuff like that. We weren't staying in like tents or anything like that. Oh, uh, okay. There's so like little two man trailers um with like a swamp cooler attached to each mm. um but the often the power went out so you'd be trying to sleep and then you know it's 115 outside so it's 125 in your fucking trailer <laughs> man that's rough so what what were you doing for the army were you doing the same stuff uh oh no no when i went to the army i switched from doing radar to what's called cram um and you could just look it up. It's like the letter C dash R A M C Ram. You can look that up on YouTube. There's some cool videos actually. But it's it's base defense. My job was to shoot down the rockets and mortars um, oh, from the sky before they would touch down on the base. Wow. And like, you know, blow shit up. <laughs> wow. So how often did you have to blow out rockets? Um, it wasn't like a daily thing, but. You know, every so often, yeah. And I was wow. there for a, a while, so yeah, every so often. And it was it was loud. You can hear like loudest thing I've ever heard in my life. Still, and, it, and 
try to like jam in the ear protection or like plug my ears before I would go off. Wow. But you're trying to like control the computers and you're trying to like hone in and everything is done by heat. So we could kind of like find it kind of fairly easily, but like you still need to be the one that's like, you know, assuring and affirming, you know? Sure. So you're it's doing this all by, you're doing this all by computer. Yes. Yeah. Um, if I could describe the, it's like a 18 wheel trailer. Um, like here would be the control booth and, um, here's like the, like the mechanical, like engine part of the, of the mount. And then the mount would be here. Wow. So, um, you said it's not a daily occurrence, but it happened often in between those things. Are you just like, are you just on for like eight hours or whatever watching just to 12 make sure? hours? It was, 12. it was 12 on 12 off, which I embraced after yeah. being six on six off. Sure. Because it was like, yes, I can get off and work out, go to bed, still get eight hours, you know? <laughs> right, 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 man. So, um, but I mean, tell me, I, I got to imagine when you hear there's, I mean, is there some siren or something that lets you know that there's a rocket coming? Your yeah. Way? yeah, yeah, for sure. There's always. Tell me about that. Like your heart has to be racing when you see. Yeah. Something. And then because, you know, there's, um, you know, some of the stuff I've like, you know, dealt with is like when you, you miss a target, you miss a target. Fuck. Stuff gets mm. fucked up. You miss a target. You know? Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Man, that's rough. So, so what's the what's the success rate within CRAM for hitting those rockets? I mean, it was it, high. It was yeah. high. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, my whole time there, I was there for a year. I only had like one bad day, but you know, that one bad day kind of made the difference. Yeah. Well, but, that's yeah, because it's that's got to carry with you, right? I mean, yeah, yeah it's too. Rough. That's rough. I'm sorry. Like I said, I mean, if you don't want to talk about certain things, you can always tell me that's cool. Yeah. I, don't want to well, I mean, that, that's pretty much it. You know what I mean? That's yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Bad day. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, you're out, you were out there for a year and you had one bad day. That's, yeah. That's a, that's a rough. I, I'm only one and a half. <laughs> <laughs> but, still, but still, you know, you think about that, right? Like a high success rate and you know, you're there 365 days, just 365 ish, I imagine. And you have one and a half bad days and that haunts you, you know, that's, that's, yeah, uh, well, I mean, and then there's, there's, there's other people that have bad days too. And then, you know, you mm -hmm. sympathize with your boys and shit. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. yeah. And nothing, nothing's sacred. Everything is fair game out there. If you ain't been there, you, you ain't. What do you mean by that? I mean, just like there's no, um, there's no filter for anything, mm. <laughs> you know, uh, verbiage, uh, hands. It's a war as wolf. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you? Um, so, as far as going out, I mean, were there ever times where you were in full? I'm assuming if you were doing that, you weren't ever in like full on combat. Like, uh, no. Uh, no, I mean there were like a couple of nerve wracking times because we had we had uh you know those SeaWiz mounts that are the SeaRam mounts that I was telling you about. There we had eight of them around the base, mm -hmm. and then like throughout the course of the deployment, we would rotate like you know what mountain you'd be at. Like mm -hmm. so, each month you'd just find yourself at a new mount. Mm -hmm. One of the mounts was actually not on Camp Victory. 
it was it was at the air force base so you'd have to kind of like convoy over mm. and um you know this is heavy ass wartime and they stuck me in like the cheapest fucking humvee they could find it didn't even have a door on it <laughs> right. and i'm like deploying you know and i'm i'm fucking convoying from camp victory to the air force base and anything can happen in between there sure you know, so it's just like constant, like that, that month sucked. Cause like, it was just like fear inducing every day traveling to work. Oh, you wow. know, whereas like the other gun mounts, you were already on base. You just had to like, you know, go from your muster point to, you know, check in, get your vehicle and then mm. drive out to your gun mount. That was yeah. already on camp victory. So, wow. I mean, don't get me wrong. Anything that happened at all, period. Cause it's, it's fucking Iraq, but like, right. That that sucked. Like having to go from that month sucked. Like mm. nobody liked being at that mount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you just do the one deployment? Uh, that one, yeah, okay. yeah. I did one Westpac deployment with the Navy, and then one deployment with the Army. And how long were you with the Army? Uh, like a year and a half. Okay. It's like six month training, and then. And then uh, you're right there. Yeah, and I actually had to extend my contract in order to do that because mm. I actually I joined the Navy for four years, and in order to do that, I had to extend to five. Oh, okay. So I got augmented for like that year and a half, and they put me back in the Navy for my last six months to like transfer out because I wasn't going to reenlist. Oh, okay. Okay. So, how what was your total uh, military time then? Was it? Did you do do the whole five years? Actually, yeah, yeah. It was a little okay. over five years. Five years and some change. Okay, and then um, you come back. Uh, tell me how life changed when you came back. I gotta imagine that wartime kind of changed you a bit. Yeah, um, like way more anxious. Uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was a firecracker too. You know what I mean. Um, mm -hmm. And I started drinking a lot. Uh, yeah, when I came back, that's when I really, really started drinking. Uh, my wife had left me while I was there, so by the time I came back, she was already like kind of gone. Mm. So I was just really into like drinking and like trying to get laid all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so what what was it if you if you could give us a you know you can go as broad or as deep as you want it's up to you but what do you what was it specifically that that induced you to drink so much was it the was it the leave the wife leaving was it the was it the you know the the day and a half that was bad was there something else um I don't know. It just kind of felt like I couldn't win. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It really felt like. Um, what do you What like, do you mean? Like by I wasn't that? meant. Like I wasn't meant to be like a like a, um, you know, like a winner. <laughs> so I just wait, like wait. I was fully convinced that I was just like meant to be like a loser. So I just fell into it. I was like, well, if I'm a loser, then fuck it. Let's just like. You know, let's get drink every day and keep our standards low, and everyone else, that we don't have to um, fear any challenges or failures. You know. Yeah, but what? Why? What was it that made you feel like you were destined to be a loser? I mean, you served. You served a year in Iraq. I mean, that's winter. I mean, that's 
tough stuff and you did it. I didn't feel like I did much. Mm. Um, I think my cousin that was an MP, like he used to make fun of me because he has to, his the time in war was like way more harsher than mine. Mm. It's like you were on vacation, blah blah blah. So like that probably didn't help either. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just like felt like I just couldn't win. So I wanted to feel like uh, I wanted to feel good. So that's why I started like training to become a wrestler because that's what I wanted to do. Sure. Real quick before we move on, because I do want to talk about you getting back into wrestling and, and all that. But um, you'd mentioned off air that you'd lost some friends while you were there. Were they that? And you don't have to go too far into it. I know that I've seen you every year. You post a picture of a friend of yours that passed away. So, Who was he? Let's check this out. This, that's actually that's Chief Pike. Um, when I knew him, he was a E5, so so he's petty officer Pike. Um, but we actually came from the same ship, but we, and he got augmented too. But um, he went to Afghanistan and I went to Iraq. Hmm. So it was one of those situations, and we were like, like that was my boy on the ship, like because um, he had kind of like taught me how to work out on the ship and just kind of like. Um, uh, I don't know. He, he was just like, felt like he like really looked out for me. He like taught me a lot of shit. He was just like a real cool, like big, big brother type figure. Mm. So it was like, yeah, cool. We both got augmented. Let's get the fuck out of here. Fuck the USS Cleveland. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we both, yeah. So he went to Afghanistan and I went to Iraq and, you know, I came back from my deployment and he didn't come back from his cause he had got uh shot in the eye. Um, and he, they sent him to Germany because because he didn't pass away just yet, and then he ended up like finally cutting out once once he got to Germany. Wow, wow! And was he he got shot? Was he like on an deployment? Like I mean, I don't know the right vernacular, but yeah, you know, yeah. You know anything about how that happened or? Um, I don't know the full details. Um, mm -hmm. that that's just a story I got. Oh, and he was he was you know out on patrol and they had gotten to a firefight he dug down he readied his his weapon and he came up and just got caught mm. were you still in iraq or were you home by the time you heard about that i was home by the time yeah i was mm. back already oh wow mm. sorry so dude. I, that was devastating man because i was waiting for him to come back i was excited for him to come back you know mm -hmm. what i mean mm -hmm. that yeah. sucked a lot yeah, I bet. Because I was, Cause I was uh, he was gonna be back like a little bit before I was like officially getting out of the navy. So I was really looking forward to you know those last couple you know months or whatever with them on the ship, and then. Man, that's tough. So you uh, you 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 mentioned you were coming back and you're feeling kind of like a <clears throat> you you felt like you were destined to be a loser, just because you didn't. It sounds like you know people made you feel bad about your, your military service. And, you know, you obviously had some hard times and you said, uh, you mentioned that wrestling was something that kind of made you happy. Yeah. So tell me more about that. You get back into wrestling and I got to imagine to so you, this has been two years or so now, well, five years now, right? You were five years that you were in the art. Yeah. Yeah. Arsenal. So this is like five years later and I came back and, um, 
some things are different some things are the same you know yeah um spw spw had moved on from the colonial to the st peter's hall right i remember that time and had at this time was samurai running things or was, was this was like just when it got switched over and okay. to this day i guess there was some drama about it like how samurai got it from ugly but like i don't know what it is and i was super green you know coming in coming back because mm -hmm. i had talked to ugly like i was I said it my whole like him and Vinny were gonna train me mm -hmm. initially. And then um yeah, we were chatting like the whole time I was in Iraq. We were just not like fucking pen pals or whatever, but whenever we would chat like on, on MySpace back then. <laughs> <laughs> whenever we would chat, you know, every once in a while, you know, we'd be like, Yeah, I got the school going, me and Vinny, blah blah blah, we'll train you up, we'll finish, you know, we'll be mm -hmm. a smooth ride. Was that when they were back in their garage, or was that when they were in the? Because I know they trained in a back. I don't even know. I don't even know what they were doing. Um, but yeah, by the time I I, I in that email, I was like, "Hey, I'm in Sacramento. Let's get this going." You know, like mm -hmm. he was like, "Well, <laughs> I don't have it anymore. Um, I gave it to Samurai. Um, him and CJ are running things now." Oh wow. So, and then at that time, I didn't know CJ, like, I'm no, I'm now. And I mean, like, the crazy fucking deathmatch guy, that guy, like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I've known, I mean, tangentially, I've known CJ since literally I was there. Him, and, well, okay. So him and Ugly, both. They're, uh, Ugly's first official match was the same, and CJ's first official match was the same day as my first official match. Oh shit! And the day before that, Ugly, I think he's okay with me talking about this now. I've talked about it twice now. Talked about it when Johnny was on too. But his the night before that, he was wrestling in my backyard, oh, and shit. and it was so so it was Jesus. That's oh, okay, how I, okay. I got to know Jesus was when Jesus they talks. So yeah, he did tell me about that. Yeah, and so we did this big backyard show in my backyard, and and Ugly was on it. And so I remember I've known CJ since literally his first match. And that dude is legit. Just he's a legit worker. He knows what he's doing. He's oh, yeah. He doesn't sure. have to. That's the thing that's so crazy about CJ is he he doesn't have to do that stuff to get over. No, you know, he just did. <laughs> like apparently likes doing it. You know what I mean? And just and in you know, the memorable moments. I mean, here we are. That was probably 15, 20 years ago that he he did that. And we're still talking about it. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'll never forget it. Like, yeah. That was nuts. So so you get back in, you start training. How long did you have to train? Did you have to start all the way over or what? Uh no, actually when I went back to the academy, um so yeah, when I first started training when I was a teenager, the school was in the colonial theater. But like when I got back, fucking the ring was just like halfway put up in CJ's backyard and we have to like halfway tear it down at the end of every camp. Um, but they did cut me a discount. So that's cool. Um, uh, <laughs> instead of a hundred bucks a month it was 50 bucks a month for me to train when I got back from the military. Nice. And then I trained, I did like retain some knowledge from my previous training. So, um, I trained from June to November and then I can't remember the exact date. Might've been the 12th. I want to say 12th of November, 2009. I debuted against Timothy Thatcher at Punk Slam. 
Oh, wow. How was that? Working Tim Thatcher. That's good. Yeah, yeah. that's fun. Like, uh, he took a fucking bump off the apron on the floor for me. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy motherfucker. Oh, man. So who was training with you when you were training at that point? Uh, it was just me, Christina Von Erie, and Christina's little brother. Um, James? James, yeah. That was just, it was just us. That was, so you, that was my camp, basically. Um, so you, you were, what, like six months before? Because I remember there was a time when J.R., Brian, Tannen, uh, and... Um, uh, yeah, those guys were the class after me. I had I had got wet for like two years, a little bit. Okay. And then uh, Brittany Wonder, uh, Joe DeSole, Jared Kratos, and Brian Tannen came, came in, and they yeah. started training, and they were the... I debuted in 2009, and they were the class of 2011, debuting in January 2012. Yeah, I remember that time. I remember that time frame. So, so now you're you're wrestling. Tell me how wrestling kind of uh, changed things for you, or did it? Um, like, what do you mean? In what aspect? Well, you you mentioned earlier that you were. It sounds like you were kind of depressed. You were feeling kind of low, and uh, you know, drinking a lot. And then you kind of get into wrestling and that makes you happy. Does that change things for you? Are you still kind of struggling? Uh, talk about that. Um, I I just use it as an excuse to party constantly. Like, mm. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, I was at shows and I was meeting people and stuff. Um, and I was just like always. I, I had lived in a apartment by myself at the time, but I hated being by myself couldn't stand it so i was always like like i said man i was always trying to get laid so i was trying to like invite somebody over or, like have a friend over to like drink with me mm. um i'd have friends come over and uh you know make everyone do shots and shit so that so that they wouldn't leave and they'd have to stay with me you know? <laughs> yeah. what why why didn't you like being alone um i didn't like myself i couldn't stand being by myself at the time mm. okay and was there something particularly that you didn't like about yourself or, um, you know, put, talk a little bit about that if you would. I just had like low, low, low self-esteem. Um, mm. And I have like, I've just been rejected a lot. So I didn't feel like worthy. Mm. Rejected yeah, by, That's rejected by um, Just like my wife, I never really felt like, oh. like, think I was ever like super good at anything so nobody really ever like praised me I can never mm. complain about anything because boys don't fucking cry in my family yeah um yeah that's, uh, man that's rough yeah I mean I, I gotta tell you you know I, I know like divorce is hard dude I mean that's that's rough and you know uh I gotta imagine I don't know what the the, the divorce you know what what the divorce was about I mean you're obviously you're gone so Lord knows yeah. what you're while you're gone. You know what I mean? And yeah, exactly. And you're going through everything and you're already going through stuff because you're there. And yeah. Dealing with that. And then, you know, I mean, there's a, I got to imagine there's also a level of, uh, you know, you're, you're out there defending your country, defending freedom and she doesn't care. Yeah. That's <laughs> what I mean. Like it, like, yeah, just like stuff like that. It's just like, I'm trying so hard to be, cause you, you know, I'm already in Iraq because like, I don't feel like I'm getting 
any kind of like praise for my Navy service. So maybe if I go to war like my cousin did, maybe I can get some praise like the way he is, you know? Yeah. But then I go and then my wife fucking leaves me. So I'm like, dude, (laughs) (laughs) my best here so I can like, you know. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's so interesting you bring that up because, you know, we talk about mental health. And uh, I got to imagine, does it is, would it be fair to say that before you, even before you went into the army, that you had this kind of like inferiority complex, kind of like you just kind of didn't feel like you were enough? Yeah, yeah, definitely, like for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, I probably didn't even hone in on the fact that I had an issue with like that and being rejected until 2017, which is only what five or six years ago. Yeah. Right. And that's, it's interesting when you think about that stuff, because yeah, when you, when you're low and you have low self-esteem and you're feeling like you're not enough, you seek external validation so much. That's it. That's exactly why I was always like trying to get laid and always trying to have people over and like, Mm -hmm. you know, try to buy the next whatever. So someone can think that it's cool. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Now I remember you during this time and I remember you were, you were working you're trying to figure out gimmicks uh one of the there's a question here um uh about who your favorite opponent to wrestle is but who were your who did well let's start there that was a question who was your favorite opponent to wrestle like at the time or or of all time or let's start let's start with the time and then let's talk about all time let's see back then um jesus cruz Man, I loved working Jesus Cruz. Um, had a lot of bangers with him. And my favorite part was, like, everybody else didn't like to work Jesus Cruz. So I was like, cool, give it to me. I'll have a fucking banger with him. So, like, we had bangers at, like, we at SPW, UCW, uh, DMW. Like, we worked everywhere. We fucking made a loop out of our match, basically. And you know, our, match was, our match was just fucking snug fest yeah that's pretty much it because we're best friends you know what i mean so we just go out there we just chunk them i don't even think we ever hardly ever called anything (laughs) what's funny about that is uh so i told the story when i had derevko on um when i first started swf wrestling i called up derevko and i was like hey um i'm starting a wrestling promotion i want to check out some of the talent where should i go and he's like come to come to DMW and Martinez. And I was like, all right. And so I show up and I mean, you, you remember what DMW was like. I mean, it was just like yeah, the yeah. Ring, boys, a girls club and the ring was kind of trashy. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it did not have a great setup, but I sat down with a buddy of mine and I'm like, I told him I go, cause he wasn't involved in wrestling at all. I mean, he liked wrestling, but he wasn't involved. And so I go, Hey man, tell me when you see something you like first match out the gate was you and Jesus. <laughs> Oh man. And it was funny because I saw Jesus come through and I'm like, I know that guy. You know I mean? <laughs> and then you came out and yeah, you guys had a really good match. And I remember you uh Joe uh uh you know coach Joey Nuggs was there and uh you kind of played to him a little bit. But anyway, I remember I remember seeing like he, he my friend telling me he's like those guys those guys could go and that's I that you're you were one of the guys I booked, you know, you and Jesus. Yeah. So so you liked working Jesus Cruz. How about all all time? Who was one of your favorites? Uh, all time, I think 
I would say that the absolute beside like death matches aside, like the first mm-hmm. like straight lace traditional wrestling match that I've had is probably against Mike Hayashi at the Virgil Flynn tribute show. Oh yeah, I remember. Fucking went like we went like twenty five or some shit, mm-hmm. and just yeah, <laughs> put it, left it all in the ring that night, and I'll yeah. never forget that one. Um, death match wise. Um, uh, me and Drink Younger had probably like one of my favorite death matches ever. Um, also, to his credit, Joe Soul. Uh, me and Joe Soul had a banger death match um, at Hood Slam as Street Fighter characters. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? I was Akuma and he was Ken. <laughs> nice. Awesome. That's fun. So um, now I remember you also doing uh, the tag gimmick with. Uh, with- uh, Levi Shapiro, the circumsexy. Yeah. Together for you guys were a lot of fun. Yeah. That, um, yeah. We were actually the longest reigning tag champs at BMW. And yeah. every show was just like figuring out a new way to like shenanigans, you know? <laughs> like, sure. You know, um, we worked like old school. So a lot of the old, like the, a lot of the veterans liked working us. Mm. Um, because we didn't, we weren't really into like fancy moves and shit. We just wanted to like beat people's asses and like be douchebags and get heat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so we got over with like the veterans pretty good. Mm. Um, so we got to learn from like some cool veteran tag teams, like the Cuzzies. Mm. Um, we worked some bad tag teams too, though, because it was you know, <laughs> DMW did some work with like some uh, some other guys that mm. weren't the best and, uh, and then what else uh tagging with johnny i started tagging with johnny too because we, we started hood slam in 2010 so yeah. i was tagging with johnny kind of around the same time too but um kind of same deal but like those shenanigans were like way over the top because that that's hood slam that's an alternative right. show right so as you're going through all that stuff you're still um, you know, I, I know you were still kind of living that party lifestyle, especially when you and Johnny started doing the Butabi's oh, game. Yeah. You know, um, even when I was there with Circumsexy, I was still like, you know, we were always, uh, or I, you know, probably me more so, but um, on the road, so me and Levi used to get down, <laughs> partying, you know, yeah. So you're you're drinking, and also I know you you you've talked in the past about uh, drug use as well, using some hard drugs. Yeah, um, I didn't start that until probably 2016 is when I started using like drugs. <laughs> okay, okay. So you're uh, you debut in 2009. You're going uh, um, until you know about that time. Uh, when did you start working with with Johnny on the uh, Butabis? Um, 2010, April 2010 was the debut of Hood Slime and the Butabi Brothers. Okay. Yeah, and we uh, yeah, we just built up one hell of a reputation for being just um polarizing yet very funny. So mm-hmm. it was like. These guys are assholes, but goddamn, they're funny. Like that's kind of like the vibe that we got from like everybody. So it's like, sure. we we love them, but fucking fuck, 
kind of keep them over there. <laughs> right, right. And, and I also know that you guys, at least, at least the gimmick you guys would portray, you know, you guys were the life of the party. Yeah, yeah. So even even when you're not in the ring, you guys are partying all night. But that's like that's who we were. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's just like they say the best gimmicks are is, is you know when you you're yourself times a thousand, and that's the Butabi Brothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially at that time, you know what I mean. Nowadays, it's pretty much like seeing DX in two thousand fucking six. You know what I mean? It's like totally mm-hmm. like. <laughs> You know, right. we still have fun, and it's it like because we, you know, we just did a show uh, recently. Me and Johnny tagging again. Yeah, and, uh, that was a lot of fun. But you know, I'm not out there chugging drinks and putting my face and titties and shit like I was. <laughs> you know, right, <laughs> right. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit more. Um, well, first of all, in wrestling, this may have contributed to it because I uh, contributed to your, I don't know, your maybe your inferiority a little bit. But I remember in that time frame, I always thought you were a good worker. But for some reason, uh, you weren't really getting your due, you know, during that time. I mean, that's, that's kind of like an, another complex that I went through. It was like, you know, like everyone around me is getting picked for these cool bookings. Like, what is it about me I don't like? Like, you know what I mean? Right. Uh-huh. Right. And then with that... And then that would boil up until I would like say something fucking stupid on Facebook, and just, and then that just reiterates why the fucking I'm not getting opportunities in the first place. And then thinking, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's just like a big snowball. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know it was interesting during that time frame too. Uh, this is just an observation of somebody who was there and just and and, and had used you and worked with you. Was that you? Kind of, you had like this this kind of. Uh, I don't want to say strange loyalty, but like, at least with SWF, there was like kind of a unspoken heat for a minute with SPW. And it just seemed like you, you kind of almost like you were so protective of SPW. Did that have, do you think that have anything to do with it? I was, cause I was trying to like prove to the SPW guys that I'm like worthy or, you know, like I could, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm one of you guys. You know what I mean? But I right. just like, never really got that rub. Um, mm-hmm. It was never like fully accepted into a little tribe. You know? Yeah. Do you, and what? Why do you think that is? Do you have any idea? Or um, I'm just different than the guy that was making the um, like booking decisions. Like mm-hmm. I smoked pot. I partied. I, um, you know, at that time I was kind of a womanizer, you know, so like, you know, I'm sure that he saw that was like, I want to do nothing for this guy. (laughs) Right. Right. So this is, this is again, or, you know, kind of feeding into this, uh, you know, feeling you're not good enough, feeling like you're never going to be enough, kind of you're destined to be a loser type feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it all played into that. Um, just all like a part of it. Yeah, and and I'm sure as you're partying and you're doing those things and people are responding to you, you're you're feeling that external validation when you're when you're yeah. in the hobby, right? You know. Yeah, when I when I'm out there and I'm like, and I, you know, I got bookings. You know, me and Johnny, we you know, we had bookings. Mm-hmm. So every weekend it was somewhere, you know, 
probably most likely in the Bay Area, but every weekend it was time to go. And I was just like, not even living for my weekdays, basically. Mm-hmm. It was all just like, can't wait to get the fucking weekend. <laughs> right, right. What are, you, what are you doing for work during this time? Whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like whatever. Sometimes I just like literally crashed on friends' couches with doing nothing. Okay. Um, sometimes I do nothing. Sometimes I was a home restore. Sometimes I was a DJ at a at a um, strip club. Sometimes I uh, worked at a grocery store. <laughs> okay. Uh, I had a bunch of uh, one times I worked at a fucking uh, a restaurant uh, as a uh, not a server, but a, ho- a host. Hmm. Just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're going through all this. Um, you know, you, you you're having this feeling. You're not really. You know, you're not. You're not. I ge- I guess you're not feeling yourself. You know, you're not feeling like you're. And you're what's good. what's wild is like, I didn't feel like I was good enough, but I was like so narcissistic at the same time. It's terrible. Well, wow, wow, like, complete, what do you mean by that? Wait, complete wait. toxic person. Oh yeah. Like, I definitely feel like I was definitely feeling like I was never good enough. But if you talk to me, you would never know that. Yeah. Because I would just like. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I had a guy on uh, a while back. His name is Tony Overbay. He deals specifically with narcissism, and he talks about narcissism as both a personality disorder and. He says everybody's a little narcissistic. It's part of emotional immaturity when uh, when, you know, they, they do that because they don't want you to see within because yeah. if you see within they're going to be they are They know that if you saw the real like they are afraid that if you see the real them that you're not going to want to be around. You know, that makes sense. And And you know, what's ironic about that is I find that once I tapped into my true self, I just became like a light. And now, you know um yeah people do want to be around yeah well that's cool and we're gonna get we're gonna get there so so let's talk about you know where you you start let's go to 2016 so you're you're partying you're starting to do some hard drugs you know you're oh yeah um i had a, a stripper girlfriend at the time and she also had a pretty like addictive personality mm-hmm. um so we did a lot of drugs mm-hmm. um, and drank a lot. Mm-hmm. And that relationship just got like more and more and more toxic. Mm. And then. Um, did you meet her when you were the DJ? Is that- yeah. 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 That's how, that, you know, stripper DJ romance. <laughs> yeah. And um, you guys ended up together and, it, and that's uh, how long were you with her? Uh, I was with her for about a year. Okay. But then, the, I, you know, I was living, I had a roommate at the time, I was living with him, and she was over a lot. And then me and the roommate got into it, so then, like, I ended up moving in with my mom, and then she ended up coming with me to move in with me and my my, my mom's place, and I'm 30 at the time. Like, it was awful, dude. Like, <laughs> so right. cringe now. Uh-huh. Yeah, so cringe now. Man. And, and, um, yeah, my mom was letting us live in her house and we would still like go off in the middle of the night to a bar to have some drinks and like drive drunk back home. Like it was, wow, man, bro. 
Yeah. And you look back at that. I'm talking about her now, and I'm like, man, this is unsafe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny when you look back at things, you know, good things or bad things that you do or, or things that happen to you. Yeah. You look back and you go, man, that was, that was crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, look, like I said, I mean, my, my, I, I make no phones about this, but like, you know, my dad, my dad was a drug addict and he's been clean for 25 years. Uh-huh. And if you talk to him about the things that he did, like, I'm sure he looks back and goes, geez, you know, what was I doing? You know what I mean? Like crazy. It's craziness. But, you know, it's interesting. Again, like I've heard a a number of different therapists say addiction is really more about an escape from some sort of escape hatch for something else going on. Right. It's it's an unhealthy coping mechanism. And it sounds like what it was. So 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 let's so let's talk about you're 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 you've been going down this road sounds like since you got out of the army it was slowly getting more and more out of control now you're you know where does your rock bottom uh so one night uh i wrestled me and johnny were we were chugging a bottle at the show um and then i drove home i drove up me my girlfriend and him i drove us from like the fairgrounds where we were like drinking a bottle drove us like two towns over to Atwater because we were going to crash at his place. <laughs> we're still chugging this bottle. Um, and then, yeah, me and my girl at the time ended up getting into it. Um, I was completely blackout drunk. Um, but, yeah, I guess we got into it, and I ended up in jail. Wow. Um, Are you in jail in Atwater, Merced? Where did you end up in jail? I ended up in Merced County. Um. <laughs> And that was like, I think I had got arrested on a Friday and um, like, I don't know, for some reason I couldn't see a judge for like a whole fucking week. Mm. Um, So I was just in there for a whole week, man. (laughs) So you you mentioned you were blackout drunk. What is the first thing you remember as you're coming out? I woke up, well, I was, I was awake. I was awake. So I was like coming, coming to, and then I'm like, oh shit. I'm like arrested, <laughs> uh-huh. but I was, I was awake. Does that make sense? Like I didn't wake yeah. up. Like I was already awake and I'm just like aware now. I'm like, oh, oh shit. Like, oh. man, what happened? Um, did you have any idea why you were arrested at the time? Yeah, I knew that I knew where I was the night before. And like, I'm like, yeah, it had to be because fucking because my girlfriend always was like testy whenever we get too drunk anyways. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it just got like progressively and progressively worse. Mm. So you end up you end up in count, uh, Merced County. Uh, tell me tell me what that experience is like. Um. It was similar to being in the Navy, actually. <laughs> um, you get there, um, you get all naked. They give you stuff that you know you want to wear, or that they want you to wear, and then you get your little pillow and your blanket, and you 
they take you to where you're going now i'm thinking that like jail is like individual cells with like one or two dudes per cell but mm -hmm. where i got taken in merced county it was like just a big like dorm room mm -hmm. with like you know there was bars on the windows and stuff but it, yeah it was just like it was it was similar to, it was a barracks it was a fucking barracks mm -hmm. it was barracks with bunk beds just like an army mm -hmm. um it was very similar to when I was in combat training. We just weren't allowed to like go outside. You know what I mean? Just mm. stay in there. Which, mm. you know, in the army, in some cases, they just tell you that anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how are you feeling at the time when you're in there? I mean, what, what I feel horrible because I know, you know, I know that like my reputation is ruined now. I know that like I got nothing. I, I like I don't own anything. I don't. I don't have anything. I live in my mom's. I'm in jail. Uh, I'm disappointed to my mom, and I'm pretty much everything that I ever thought that I was in the first place. Mm. Wow. So it just becomes kind of like this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you. Uh, you're spending that week in jail. Was there a moment of clarity during that? Is there someone come and visit you? Is there someone talks to you? How does how does this? Work? I was like, I remember thinking like I'm fucking tired of this. Like I'm like I'm so tired of like struggling and like just tired. Of, I'm just I've had it. I'm tired of everything. When I get out of here, I'm gonna like make a change. You know, I'm gonna start changing. Like I already kind of I was already fired up to do it. And then I was already kind of fired up myself to make a change. But then the fact that like, um, you know, super beast, like my fucking, my homie, my mother and my sister, like those three and Joe soul to his credit, CJ, I just had like some really good people that still like, even though they knew that I was like, you know, complete fuck up at the time, they still were like, were they still believed in me. And that was like, that was powerful. Mm -hmm. So I was like, how can y'all like, I haven't done it. I've done nothing to make you guys believe in me. Like what makes you think that I can, that I'm capable. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, so I was fired up to make the change. I just didn't really know how to go about doing it. Um, then, you know, um, I was friends with super beast. He kind of had some of the stuff that I wanted, you know, he had, he had his bills paid. He had mm -hmm. a cool apartment and a cool car and a hot girlfriend and you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I just started fucking, I started fucking taking notes. Like, what do we got to do here? We're going to hit the gym. We're going to wake up early. We're going to fucking, you know, mm -hmm. we're going to, we're going to work a job and have side hustles. Like, okay. Like, fucking, you know what yeah. I mean? So I just, I just started getting to work. And, um, then I, then after I accumulated so many days of putting in work, then I started to actually like, almost impressed myself like wow for this amount for this long now i have been waking up early hitting the gym going to work and then doing something to like either learn something or make some kind of side money like after after all that yeah and it's just like and just i like that feeling and i just kept yeah. going it kept going yeah um, do you think you think that <clears throat> you know that i there's a i've, I've always I've always had some sort of work. I, I've never really had a time uh, since high school where I wasn't doing something or having some goal. But, you know, I, I can't help but notice and just observe as you're telling me this story 
that like you have some some wrestling stuff but like you don't really have purpose during this time that between right military and this time you get in jail there's not like a lot of purpose you don't really have somewhere to go you don't have a job that you're doing you don't really have a goal other than get into pro wrestling yeah it was like i want to be a wrestling star but i'm was doing absolutely none of the work to become the star that I wanted to be. Right. Right. <laughs> I just I just sat back and just like complained about other people getting opportunities. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting that you, the, though that you you mentioned so you just started getting up in the morning, you started going to the gym, you started getting a, you know, you got jobs and you did some side hustles and you put in the work and after a certain amount of time of doing that, you started feeling better about yourself. I'm going to throw out there cuz I I got to I got to give the man credit. Uh Virgil Flynn the 3rd was the first person to give me a job when I got out of jail. Oh wow. He was wow. the manager at uh at uh, DC Metals, which is just like a recycling place, people come to bring the fucking scraps to get pennies for them, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he gave me my first job there. Wow! And it like, like it was nothing too. Just like, what do you got going on? Like, do 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 you have a job? Okay, you don't. Well, you come. You need to come work for me. That's awesome. Like, wow. wow. <laughs> Virgil was one of the coolest guys I, I ever met. I, there's there's very few people in the wrestling community. For those who aren't involved in the wrestling community, there are very few people that literally nobody has anything bad to say about. And yeah, Really, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you get into a locker room with some of these guys and everybody will talk trash about somebody who's not. Everybody. There. Right. One guy I never heard a bad word about was Virgil Flynn. Never. That that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, everybody loved him. Everybody loved Virgil. It's true. Yeah. It's so true. And that's the type of stuff. Why? I mean, I've heard of you know, like I remember hearing a story about when I met um, Nuck Nuck, you know, the ref who refed my first match back, and I I was like, if I could have you ref every match I ever do, that'd be great. <laughs> You know, he's so good. But he told me he was like, I was stranded down in Southern California and I called Virgil and Virgil just goes, all right, we're coming to pick, you know, tells his wife, all right, we're going to pick up Nuck Nuck and drove all the way down to Southern California, picked him up and drove him back. Just, you know what I mean? That's a six, seven hour drive. And he did it like it was no big deal. Oh, man. So I didn't even know about that one, man. Yeah. But yeah, he would do stuff like that. He just, <laughs> man, I miss him so much, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was just thinking about him the other day, man, because, um, you know, we just had the, the Royal Rumble happen yesterday. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember when during that time when I was working at DC Metals, like, you know, we'd be like, uh, you know, because it was like me, Virgil, Joe Soul, and CJ and like, you know, a couple other friends from work. You know, we all worked together at the fucking DC Metals. <laughs> so like. Sunday would cook come around and on Sundays we got off early on Sundays. We get off at two instead of or or two or three instead of five. <clears throat> so pay-per-view days, it was like Virgil. Virgil lived down the street. He had a house and had kids, which means he had fucking snacks. All the boys we all come together. And you know, it was like uh three of Virgil's brothers work with us too. So we all get together and kind of like all right, Virgil, is it cool if we all come over and have a wrestling party? You know? <laughs> yeah. And um, um, he'd be like, I got to check in with the wife. Never would check in the wife. 
and people would just start <laughs> showing up at the house. <laughs> uh, and I had to put over that memory real quick because it yeah. happened more than once. It was it was a lot of pay per views. <laughs> We're done that way. That's awesome, man. And you, you know, you need somebody like that that's going to give you that chance, especially when you're off. Now, when you uh, so you get out of jail, um, you, you get this job. You at some point, I wanted to ask you about this. You started dancing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tell me where that is in the story. So that is after. Uh, okay. So 2016 was the rock bottom. 2017, I started to make my comeback. And um, I meet this girl named Stephanie. I'm super into this girl, like way like head over heels into this girl. And we, um, those are my first relationship after like the really toxic breakup that I had with all mm -hmm. the drugs and stuff. And I was super into this chick and we dated for like a year and then we broke up after that. And I was like right back to feeling like I wasn't good enough again after like mm -hmm. I had put in all this work. Mm -hmm. I needed something to feel empowered again. Mm -hmm. So that's when I started going to burlesque class. <laughs> nice. nice. What made you think about burlesque class? In particular. Because, because burlesque intrigued me because I can get the sexy empowerment feeling I wanted, but I could still tell a cool story like pro wrestling. Ah, okay. All right. Um, and uh, in this time frame, by the way, you get clean, right? Yeah. Um, the, the day I went to jail, that was the day I had my last drink because mm. – um, you know, as far as like uh, why I was going to jail, I, I was accused of something way worse than what I actually did. But I'm not going to I don't want to sit here and be one of those people that downplays it like that because, mm -hmm. you know, toxic is toxic and being trash person is being a trash person. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um, I kind of forgot where I was going with it. But um, well, we were talking about, you know, you got clean. Um, yeah, clean. I I. Um, I didn't ever want to be even put into a situation where I could ever not be in control of myself. Mm -hmm. So I was like, every, every time I've ever tried, cause I've already tried to like be in control of the drinking before. And it's just like, you know what? Every single time I've ever tried to, to like cut back or stay in control, the alcohol always fucking wins. So let's just cut that out. Let's, let's yeah. take that out. Mm -hmm. And I, I, for, for a while there, I even cut out the marijuana. I was just like straight edge for a while, mm -hmm. but then, you know, I ended up realizing the marijuana never made me a fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's something you, and I imagine that also helps with some of the mental health issues that you're. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't sleeping when I wasn't smoking. Um, mm -hmm. so I, yeah, I'm a bit of a cannabis advocate. That's really all I do. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, um, I was also doing a lot of cocaine and Molly when I was like nearing my rock bottom. Yeah. You know, so I don't do any, I don't do any of that stuff. I haven't touched any of that mm. since, since the day I went to jail, which wow. was October 3rd, 2016. Did you uh, do any sort of 12 step programs or you just do a cold turkey? Um, I actually went to celebrate recovery, uh, which is, yeah. <laughs> wow. So that's now been, Five, six years? Yeah. Um, yeah, six years and some change now. Wow. That's awesome. So now you you go and do you, – you, you take burlesque class. 
and how does that like what what is it about that that's empowering to you it was for two reasons um well the process of becoming a burlesque dancer was empowering because i was able to tap into um my feminine side which is really weighed heavy on me that i was never really able to tap into it i was always too embarrassed to mm. which is i it's a who i am i was raised predominantly by my mom and her five sisters so mm. i have a lot of lady mannerisms that are just they're just go-to things for me mm -hmm. you know and it's it, it throws people off sometimes because i like to fucking do a lot of masculine shit, but sometimes I'll have a conversation and I'll throw one of these, you know, or whatever, and they're just like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I used to be really embarrassed about that. Um, so so when you talk about this feminine side, what are the things that you're talking about? Um, just uh, the way I present myself. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, just my mannerisms, the way I talk. Um, the way I react to something, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes, and you know, I don't want to do the damn. Sometimes I want to be like, you know, like, uh, <laughs> uh, it's uh. just who I am. Uh, Have you always felt like you were that way or did that come on over time? Or? Yeah. When my, um, when nobody was home, when I was like 11 or 12 years old, I used to like sneak in the closet and throw like my mom's lady clothes on. I used to love it. Like, I used to really? Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just kind of hid that up, huh? Yeah, because, you know, this is the the 90s we're talking here. <laughs> yeah, I remember how we talked about people like that in the 90s. It was not cool. It was not real nice. Yeah. So so as you're uh, you're going through, so you're, you're tapping into a, a feminine part of your... Yeah, because I'm, I'm going to burlesque class and I'm being trained by women. I'm the only mm -hmm. guy there. So... Mm -hmm. I'm basically like a, you know, getting brought into this tribe of women where women are like, they, you know, it was, it was very similar to being in the house with my mom and a couple of her sisters. It's just like, I'm just there and mm -hmm. they're, they're venting, they're, they're making, they're creating, they're just, and I'm just sort of in this feminine, strong feminine environment. Mm -hmm. And it really like, just let that part out of me. And once it felt so good to get to get that out of me because even though I was presenting that side of me to an audience, they were cheering and they were throwing money on the stage. So it was like hmm. very, very empowered. Like, yeah, hmm. not like nothing else. Um, I love pro wrestling, but like the level of empowerment Burlesque gave me was like it's untapped. It was like no other. Hmm. Was there a level that's just curious about this? Because I know we'd kind of talked offline a little bit also that when you were younger, you were kind of, uh, you know, a heavier kid and kind of grew into your own in high school, right? Yeah. Um, was there a level of this uh, where you just kind of didn't feel uh, desirable, I guess, to the opposite sex? Yeah. Or stuff like yeah. That? Um, definitely. Like when I was more, when I was a teenager and stuff more so than when, when I was adult because I had already like trimmed down and stuff like that and had mm -hmm. hit the weights and stuff like that um but when I was a kid I was tortured for being fat like um mm -hmm. tortured it was horrible I used mm -hmm. to like just hate going to school like I remember just hating it like I 
Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, cause I, the way I grew, I was always taller than everybody else, but I kind of grew out and then up and then out and then up. Right. Awesome. And then, like, and then it was probably my sophomore junior year when I was playing basketball that I started trimming down, you know, yeah. but the, yeah. but the same thing, you know, you get, I mean, kids, are, especially in the eighties and nineties, man. It was just oh brutal. yeah. Yeah. Cruel. Exactly. It was not like it is now where everyone's like, accept yourself. There, yeah. There was no bully, uh, you know, yeah, there was no bully programs. And, yeah, there were no anti-bullying pro campaigns going on. Yeah, none of that, dude. Like, it was and, just like sink or swim, motherfucker, out there on the on the recess. Court. Right, and there were very few people who weren't who weren't being bullied. Like everybody was bullying each other. It felt like. yeah, you know yeah. And that's kind of how sure. we developed. And I pl I played basketball in high school, and it just kind of everybody just capped on each other. It's just the way we did it. You know yeah. what I mean? And so it was just kind of. That's interesting. So do you think that, you know, here you're, you're doing this burlesque and somehow that's kind of helping you, helping you kind of feel a little more desirable Yeah, uh, and kind of bringing your true self out. Yeah. And, uh, I was, at, and I was really getting into fitness too. After I stopped drinking, um, like I mean, I'm starting to look good, <laughs> you know? So, um, yeah, I, I remember that time frame because you you were always muscular, but you always had a probably like ten or fifteen pounds on top of it. Yeah, and, and then uh, and then I I know you've shown some of your pictures of 2016 to 2021 and the change that you you know until uh, today and the change you made. I mean, it kind of got got bigger, but man, I remember when that happened. You started really trimming down and just like yeah. You know, I, well, when I stopped drinking, I would say like. 30 days after I got drinking, I saw how lean I got. And then I just got obsessed with fitness after that. It made me feel so good, you know, like. Yeah. So, um, yeah, talk about, the, talk about for you fitness as it, you know, as it relates to your mental health. Um, Man, I need it. Uh, it used to be all superficial to me. It used to be all just like. You know, I want to be special looking. I don't want to look average. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like, I really, really needed that. It was like a fucking shield almost. But like now, now I look at fitness completely different. It's it's just like a, uh, I need to put myself through strenuous physical activity so I can be ready for life. Yeah. I can, I can handle a long grind and then having to smash on some homework right after that with no break in between. I can handle that because I already, I put myself through strenuous physical activity. It's like, it gives me that mental toughness that I need to, to meet the other goals that I have for myself. And, and it also taught me patience. I didn't have a whole lot of patience before fitness. And there was a lot of times where I wanted to throw in the towel and stop, stop training and stuff. And, you know, my bro, Super Beast, would be like, no, you like, you got to keep going. Like, just trust me. Like, mm. like, trust me. A year from now, you're like, just trust me. And I was like, all right, fuck, keep going. Fuck, kept going. And he was right. <laughs> there are so many. I wish people understood how many life lessons they can learn in the gym. I mean, Dude, really, though, like, really, though, I, like I just said, I learned patience and like, that is such a, a monumental lesson to learn. Yeah. Like you you hear about patience, but you don't like really grasp the concept and like learning.
I didn't until I got into fitness. Cause Dude, it's funny you bring that up because like, I remember I, I, I was telling somebody who was talking about going to the gym, you know, cause you probably get this too. Every once in a while you'll get a message from someone who's completely out of, out of shape and they'll be like, Hey man, where do I get started? How do I, you know, yeah. what do I do? I seen your transformation or cause I have my own transformation. I mean, I was three fifty. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're looking good, man. For sure. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. I, and, uh, and so, and I always tell them the same thing. I go, listen, here's the number one thing, right? No one workout is going to do it for you. Like you, yeah. you know, you, it took me almost a year before I saw a muscle in the mirror, you know, the fitness journey is weird because when you, when you first, first start, like you'll trim down kind of fast. So that first six months is really good. Yeah. It's the, it's the after that first six months and you kind of like, you stop trimming down so much and then the muscle like starts to slowly build, you know, you're not, yeah. you know, the, that, that, that first initial pump in your, your whole body's kind of like has already filled out. So now you got to start adding to it. That's the mind flow. I think, uh, I mean, every perspective is different, but for me, like, you know, the first six months is like getting going is hard. Mm -hmm. Like that first initial get going. And then if, if you can get that first stride going for like a month, then, then you're, you're good for, for like a good six month run. You, you, you could probably stay pretty motivated after that first six months. That's when it starts to be challenging because that's when you stop seeing the, the the quick yeah. right that's just being a real right. slow grind after that you know i remember one time i was talking i think it was you i actually was talking to you and i said hey man how long was it before you felt like you were really like getting the body you wanted and you were like i would say after working out five years and i was like five years <laughs> <laughs> like seriously and that but it's true man like i've been i've been doing it now since i i started hitting the gym six days a week in 2019 we're four years in and i'm like yeah it's dead on i mean every and now it's like it's not even a thing now it's not even like it's not even a thing like i have to go to the gym yeah exactly you know I mean? like if i don't my whole day is screwed up yeah because i don't know it's just you get endorphins off of it too it's yeah. just like it's, it's it's setting up yourself yourself self-discipline it's putting yourself to the strenuous activity that gets you you know that makes you callous for dealing with shit you don't want to deal with yeah um by making yourself work out every day you you can deal with life so much fucking better than if you don't yeah you will yeah. learn so much and um and you'll look good i mean yeah right you know it, it yeah. And that's yeah. funny. That's that's how fitness started for me. Was I just wanted to look good? That's all I cared about. But now it's like I probably look a lot better than I. I think I look better now than I did then, and I care so much less about how I look now. Yeah, it's weird, right? Like yeah. how life does that sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting how if you really <clears throat> if you really put it in. I mean, it's an hour a day. Right. Like if you really yeah. you really want to one hour a day. And I remember th I hear people sometimes drives me nuts when they're just like, oh, man, how do you find time? And I'm like, how do I find time? If you if it matters to you, you'll find the time. Yeah. You know, if yeah. it matters enough, you'll find the time. And when they tell me they're too busy for the gym, that's the other thing. I'm like, you're too busy for the gym. I got four kids. I work as an attorney. You know, what I mean, I do a podcast. 
Like I go, I've got church responsibilities, all this stuff. And I find an hour a day to go to the gym. You're telling yeah. me you find an hour, you, you you can't shut off American Idol for a little bit and go and. Yeah, uh, no, that's, that's the biggest cop out there is, is I don't have time. Right. So anyway, going back to burlesque. So eventually at some point you actually start working as like, you know, a showboy, right? Yeah. I was, uh, I'm a couple burlesque shows in, um, so I'm kind of like working the California burlesque circuit and like, I'm doing wrestling a lot less and, um, which is fine by me. Cause I don't have to see my ex anymore because she was still coming to the shows and like mm -hmm. banging the other wrestlers and shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so fucking, uh, so I just, I didn't want to be around that. And that, that whole thing like kind of bothered me and made me mad. So I was happy to like being around a new scene and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm doing a show in Sacramento and they bring out a guy, um, my burlesque troupe brings out a special guest. His name is, is uh, Mr. Showtime. And he's, he runs like an actual like male dancing troupe and they're fairly successful. And he's, he's been around, he's been on like Conan O'Brien. He's featured in a, in a, in a movie. Um, so, he, you know, he's done some cool stuff like as a male dancer doing the magic mic thing. And, uh, uh he i saw him perform at the bur burlesque show that i was on and then he, he saw me backstage he came right up to me and he was like hey man you know this burlesque stuff is pretty cool but you want to make some real money dancing you should come with me <laughs> <laughs> and i was like yeah man what's up and yeah. i had to pay some dues um he he had me be his driver for his private shows but every private show, he would he would be like, just watch me do this and just watch how I do this one thing. And then the next show, he'd be like, okay, I want you to watch how I do this. And he just like, he hell scold me on how to fucking squeeze as much money out of a private show as you can. Mm -hmm. And um, I took him around in summer of 2018. I took him around um june to october and then yeah in october i had my first private show and i hit the ground running just doing that wow and, and you do <coughs> a show. tell me what a private show what 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 does that involve like is it it's just, just like like you know going to dressing up like a cop knocking on the door going in you know putting on a show for the ladies okay doing All cool right. little yeah lab dances and cool chair tricks and picking the girls up and spinning them around and shit like that and, <laughs> you know at this point i've, I've developed a self-esteem and i'm feeling pretty good about myself finally you know because i had put in you know like i said it was slowly but surely i was impressing myself more and more to a point where it was like okay cool i like i have a physique now i have a little bit of money in the bank like mm -hmm. okay we're you know we're somebody we're not you know we're not feeling like we're nobody now you know what i mean now doing this show, so I'm I'm guessing it's a lot of like bachelorette parties, private parties, things yeah, like that you're dealing with. For sure. So what what is an average night? What do you what do you take home on a on a private show? Um, it depends on how many private shows I get. Like during my peak of of doing that, there was some Saturdays where I would do like three shows a day, and it'd be like Lake Tahoe, um, San Francisco, and Reno. So it was like. In one day, I'm traveling to three different cities, knocking out these shows, and I'm making, you know, five, five, six hundred bucks a show. 
Wow. Um, You're doing three shows a day? Yeah, like at my peak on a Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. Yeah, wow. we were doing really good there. Um, since I moved to Vegas, not so much. But when ah. I lived in Sacramento and was doing like the NorCal circuit, yeah, private shows were coming in and it was good. It was really wow. good. So you, you would make more money in Northern California than you would in Vegas doing that? Yes. A lot more. Wow. That's surprising. Why why do you think that is? Uh, it's probably because they don't really do private shows a whole lot out here. Uh, in the agency, I never really got linked up with the agency out here. Hmm. Uh, my agency in Sacramento does reach out here, but they're like, you know, if you did a search engine, they would be like way down there. Because they're okay. Sacramento based, technically, you know. Okay. So, yeah, I just don't get it. I'm not hooked up with a new new agency out here, mm-hmm. and I I've done burlesque out here, but I I've I've done a couple private shows out here, but it's because my old agency got you know a call about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, man. So <clears throat> you do that now. Tell me. So so you part of your story that you you told me when we were talking about setting this up was. At some point, you you packed up as much stuff as you could into an SUV and drove to Vegas, saying this is where I want to be, and slept on was it Super Beast? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me how that started. Um, I had got I got into another relationship, but this time I was with a girl. It was like a girl that I had. It's from my past that like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the one that got away yeah um i had let her got away and it had haunted me for a minute so i finally had an opportunity to get with that girl and we had it going and then we ended up living together and uh yeah as i lived together i just realized i don't want to be with her <laughs> <laughs> okay that's about as simple as i could put it uh we just we did not mesh um that turns out and mm-hmm. i'm not the type of person to if we don't mesh, we don't mesh. I'd rather go through the pain of like a breakup and just like reestablish my life and just mm-hmm. figure out something new later on than like, um, yeah. And so, uh, so you pack up everything and you so, go. To- yeah, I, I rented an SUV. Um, Cause yeah, I had my, my car blew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm at this point, I'm dancing and I'm wrestling. Um, but this is like the pandemic is happening. So now I don't have any stripper money or wrestling money coming in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, before the pandemic, I was doing pretty good. And it was dope because I was literally making my living off of wrestling and um, and dancing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was and I was just going to school. That's it. Um, I didn't have a regular job. And then the pandemic hit and it was like, fuck. <laughs> right. uh, so I had to change my lifestyle. So I was like, why don't I just completely change it um, since I have to change it anyway. Mm. So, um, yeah, I rented it. I put as much shit in it as I could. Broke up with my girlfriend and moved out to Vegas. And I crashed on Super Beast living floor. Um, this is the pandemic. So I have a little bit of money coming in because I'm going to school and I'm a veteran. I'm using my GI Bill. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I get a housing allowance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's the money I have, you know, I'm making, you know, I think it's like 1200 bucks a month for Sacramento BH. Mm-hmm. So 
came out here and just to to make extra money because I needed to save up so I can get a certification to make to get a security a state security because if you get a state security that's like the best license you can get out here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you can kind of work anywhere mm. I needed to pay for that shit but I had like you know my finances weren't the best so I just started fucking every night I would take my folding chair and I would walk a mile and a half from Super Beast house to Fremont Street during the pandemic because Fremont Street was the only thing that had some stuff going on during the pandemic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I fucking hustled lap dances <laughs> I hustled lap dances on Fremont Street until I saved enough money to get my security certificate <laughs> wow jeez so how you're in the middle of the pandemic where like nobody's walking around and you're just hustling lap dances yeah I mean there's like you know there's some people there um mm-hmm. but yeah i fucking went out there and i dressed up in my little uh firefighter outfit and you know i just work out there for tips sometimes i did really good and i come home with like 200 bucks so sometimes i come home with just like 25. yeah but right. um whatever you can come home with right yeah yeah because uh you know i didn't have a job so it was just like just go out there and it was pretty easy to register to be a street performer on fremont street nice so you do all that, and uh, as the as the um, the uh, the pandemic kind of starts waning, um, you know what what happens next? Um, well, I got a regular job with the security out with the security company out here, and still going to school, so my income is is pretty decent. But then something life changing happened um i had been fighting a case with the va for about two years um for my time in war and um when i first got out of the military i didn't get any type of pension or anything offered to me but since i had been through these experiences with the drinking and the 12-step program and the jail and all this stuff and all the jobs that i lost and i accumulated one hell of a story one hell of a case Mm-hmm. sent that in the VA and I battled them for year, year and a half, two years, somewhere around there. And I won. And mm-hmm. the way it works is you get paid from the day that you file your claim with the VA. Mm-hmm. So I filed the claim, battled them for a year and a half, won. So I ended up getting a whole year and a half of back pay, mm-hmm. which was thousands and thousands and thousands. Mm-hmm. Of- <laughs> and then ended up helping you out. And, and the case was about what was it was it to be uh like considered a disabled vet is that yeah okay exactly yeah, yeah. and so now you are you, you know you've uh, you've accumulated that and now you have a pension as a result yeah i'm a 70 percent disabled veteran um i have um percentage due to ptsd uh insomnia mm. um What's this word? The rain in the ears and loss of hearing. Mm. Oh, okay. Ringing in the ears. That's a tinnitus or tinnitus. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, and the PTSD, you know, one of the questions that, that came through was we hear about military personnel all coming home with PTSD. Why does this happen? Is it just the, the fact you're in war or something else? 
um sometimes they have you do terrible terrible things and you just gotta like fucking live with that <laughs> yeah um, sometimes uh, and that's for you know more the infantry type mm-hmm. uh, for someone like me it's when you your job is base defense and you miss your target and mm. you know um and uh, your base ends up getting attacked because you missed your target yeah wow was there also some sort of ridicule attached to that like if you missed a target did someone come in and rip you up for that or um, it get- depends on why you missed your target you know mm-hmm. um i just didn't get to it in time it wasn't mm-hmm. because i was distracted or anything so hmm. man that's rough did you did you end up getting some of that ridicule or uh i don't think so i mean i'm sure i felt like it at the time i did sure. but thinking about it now i'm sure it was just like a you know yeah yeah <laughs> well you, know, you can't be fucking you can't hit a, a home run every time you know sure well so now <clears throat> you're hustling lab dances you you get you win this case get your own place now now uh talk about uh your goals with school because you're still going to school right yeah um so uh yeah right after that i was pretty close to getting my bachelor's when i when i won my pension um, but my finances are fucking terrible mm-hmm. um so i had to pay back a lot of money that i owed um and then i ended up graduating got my bachelor's degree and a month later started going to school again and trying to get my master's degree because I switched from using my GI Bill to a program called Voc Rehab. Once you become a disabled veteran with the 70% or higher, you can qualify for this. Mm. And it's extended training to like start a career. So um, I inquired about that. I got accepted, switched over from GI Bill to Voc Rehab. And um, at first, they paid for for me to get the my bachelor's, but then they, I had some money left over, so it was it would cover most of my schooling to get my master's degree, but not full fundage. So I just I had to send them a persuasive letter, mm-hmm. um, which and then I, I I did I got accepted, so now they're paying for me to get my master's. Awesome. So you're going to get a master's in business? Yeah, I'm going to get my MBA. Awesome. And what do you hope to do with that once you get it? Um, I have a couple of ideas. Um, one of my ideas is actually like fitness, but like really, really tapping into the mental health fitness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I have that idea. I have like a couple of fun creative ideas um it's just kind of like we'll see what i really want to do when i get there uh right now i'm really working on getting my master's degree and i'm in the middle of buying my first home yeah that's um those were the two goals that i had set for myself honestly i'm so close to getting those i haven't even started thinking of where we're going to go next i just knew that like you know, when I had hit my rock bottom, I wanted to become 
self-sustaining and that I, I wanted my degree and I wanted my own home. Um, and you got it. You're, you're right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have my degree, so I mean, that goal's meant, but then now I have a new one to get the master's. Yeah. Because um, I didn't know it was only going to take like a year and a half extra for me to get the master's. So once I found that out, I was like, get it. let's just do it. Yeah, get it. Talk about what, why do you think it would be important? You, you're talking a lot about goals. Why is it important for you to live a goal-oriented life? Um, I don't have any kids or, um, you know, I mean, I'm not taking care of anybody. I, I just have to take care of myself. And I find that I am most happy when I am working towards something. Once mm -hmm. I stop working and that's what I like, like how you, how you said, remember, like just, I don't know, 20 minutes ago, you were like, I noticed that when you were talking about your time span of from Iraq to your rock bottom, there's no, you know, the, the, the ship is going, but we're not going nowhere. We're not right. heading anywhere. Right. Um, and that's when I was miserable. Now that like, now that I set little mini goals to, to obtain big goals, um, my mental health is so much better and I have the self-esteem and yeah. I have a lot of more self-love and I'm actually what's called proud of yourself. Now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what changed? What what was it do you that you would pinpoint to you've gone from I mean this is a to me this is a cool story. I mean you've gone from basically never feeling good about yourself to what the age of 30, 31 to now you're you're 36, 37, right? Yeah. And you feel great about yourself. You got your own home. I mean, you went from jail to you're getting a masters. You're getting you you got your own home. You've got all of these things. What, what's different? What do you, would you say is the thing that makes it different? Fuck. I guess I haven't really told anybody this before, but I guess I could say it now. Um, when I was going through my 12 step program initially with my rock bottom, an old man that I'd never met before came up to me at church. I'm not really like a church type person. The old man I did not know. I didn't even know his name. I still don't know his name. He came up to me and he said, hey, God's telling me that you're going through some stuff right now. And he wants me to tell you that you need to keep going and you need to just keep, just keep doing what you're doing. And he's like, I know you have something that you want to work on. Just keep working on it because you're supposed to show other people that they don't have to stay in their terrible situation. Wow. I've never told somebody that. Actually, oh, wow. I told my mom that, and that's about it. <laughs> and low podcast exclusive. I'm glad you shared it. That's awesome. <laughs> and I guess since that moment, I guess, is when I felt like I actually had a purpose. And I. So, so, what would be the message that you would share if there was somebody here right now who's listening to this who's struggling? who's who's in that bad spot um if you are intimidated by how long something will take to achieve and if it seems scary and if it seems like impossible just remember that that time is going to pass anyways so you can try your best every day 
some days, you know, you have a much higher percentage of feeling better about yourself if you just try your hardest every day. Some days you're going to feel like shit because you're going to try your hardest. You're going to feel like you're not making any headway. But that's still better than not doing anything. So chip away every single day. And I swear to God, it, it all adds up. It eventually it will add up. Um, and life does end up running out of bullets. That's about it. Dude, that's, that's awesome. You know, it's funny because one of the questions that came through, <clears throat> it was actually kind of for both of us. Um, it said, both of you have seemed to have had some really good times and some really tough times. And this person, I don't want to give too much because I don't want to give away who it is because it's supposed to be anonymous, but said they're having yeah. some good times. Uh, they've had they've had some good times, but it seems like most of the time has been bad, that people aren't giving them their due, that, that it seems like they just kind of run into problems. And, uh, and they said, uh, how, you know, how am I supposed to go about finding happiness in my life when all of these seem, these things seem to be against me? What would you say to that? Um, this is kind of going back to just trying the hardest every day. Um, and doing shit that you don't want to do. Like I, yeah. um, because eventually it adds up and you, you'll start to feel good about um, yourself and your work and um, the things that you're getting done. And there's a there's just a sense of pride in knowing that, you know what, man, I still fucking try my best. Like, it, it hurts to fail, but it hurts to fucking not doing anything at all. Yeah. You know what? The thing you know? is, is you're going to fail. <laughs> it does... Anybody who tries anything, eventually you're going to fail. I mean, you go to the gym every day and fail. Yeah. You know I mean? But that's what makes you stronger. That's yeah. the, that's a brilliant way of putting it. Yeah. Uh, just try your hardest and, and push. You should push towards failure because that's when you know you did try your hardest, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, it for me, I was, I was thinking about this question. I, you know, I've had it for a couple of days. I've been thinking about it a lot <clears throat> because I think that this generation – my my generation your generation the generations younger they've 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 seemed to forget that like life is hard you know what i mean like, yeah yeah and, and they and i think they, they forget that everyone's got something they struggle with and it doesn't matter where you're at in your life right it doesn't matter whether your problems are first world problems third world problems whether you live in a big house whether you own your own home whether you're homeless Life will bring you rain wherever you are. And, you know, this idea of like some sort of sustained happiness where you're just happy all the time, that's a fallacy. That's you're not a big gonna, time fallacy. Yeah, you're not going to get find joy in every moment. But you but joy can be found uh, by finding meaning. You know, jo joy isn't found in being a selfish ball of ailments and grievances, complaining about how the world won't devote itself to making you happy, right? True joy is found in meaning and purpose, a purpose that you personally find important and mighty. It's about being a force of nature. It's about finding purpose to act and not be acted upon. It's coming from understanding that your life is not just yours, but you know it's yours and it's your community. For me, it's my life, but it's also my kid's life. 
It's my, my live, my, the people I love, my tribe, my community. And every day that I live, it is my privilege to do for that tribe what I can. That's what, that's what makes you like feel happiest. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like doing that. Cause there was a, there was a kind of, I would say the most recently in my, like the most recent thing that I've matured in is kind of uh, learning that you do get the most joy out of like helping your people um because i used to be really like you know uh, uh, up to most recently i used to be really like i'm for myself and i gotta take care of myself nobody else is gonna take care of me and just kind of like almost had like a almost a bitterness to it about it Mm -hmm. but but now um you know even if you get betrayed or even if you um don't get anything back there's still the sense of you and that you provided and that you helped and that um you're doing something worthwhile definitely it's so important so uh you know i've had you on for a couple hours now and this is a really (laughs) cool story but i want to ask you a few questions at the end okay um First thing is, is what would you say would be your biggest success? Um, probably right now, I'm getting this house and getting this master's degree, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as far as like success stuff on paper goes. Um, as far as like just straight life stuff and, you know, all uh material paper stuff aside i think just figuring stuff out myself and becoming happy myself because nobody really like taught it to me i I went out and seeked it i chose to stop i chose to stop being tired of being miserable and i chose to seek happiness and i chose to find it and learn the lessons and humble myself and do the shadow work and face the parts of myself that I hated, you know? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, you mentioned how narcissistic you were at a time. And the thing that's interesting about that is the narcissist always points to others and says, you're the problem, you're the problem, you're the problem. And it takes a lot of emotional maturity to realize that it's not, it's not that person or that thing that's making you happy. Yeah. Fucking you. Yeah. And it's just like, how many, how many times are you going to go through something before you take a step back and say, what's the fucking common denominator here? It's me. It's fucking me. Right. And that, that fires me up so bad because I can't stand people that, that refuse to take personal responsibility and extreme ownership because there's just so many of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'm telling you, if is if you could just humble yourself and just admit that it's fucking you and just start working on it, you will be so much happier. <laughs> right. Totally. It's it's funny you bring that up. I've had that in my life, believe me. I've had that from people in my life. And it's it's infuriating, especially when those people are hurting you and they yeah. refuse and they refuse to take accountability for those things or they're hurting other people and they refuse to take accountability and they try to point the finger it's incredibly frustrating but the thing is is that uh, <clears throat> you know if you're unhappy 
this is my own experience experience in this is that when you're unhappy if you're just pointing to everybody else as to why it is uh you're never going to fix anything you're, you're never going to be happy you're just going to stay that way yeah and and uh so yeah you know i mean i think extreme accountability you know it, it sounds like for you like it wasn't until you finally started taking that accountability and looking at yourself and looking at what you needed to change making those changes setting those goals is where you got to a place where you're now happy. Yeah, because I, I did not like myself. You know what I mean? And then, yeah, I just got tired of it, man. That's just, I just got tired of my own bullshit. That's the best way I could put it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's good. Like, you, you know, know, the whole time I knew I was bullshitting myself. I knew mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I knew, I knew that I wasn't doing any work to put myself where I wanted to be. And I was using like my ignorance as an excuse to not get there instead of like, well, maybe you should research it or like try to find it or, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, sure. that makes sense. Yeah. You know, another thing I think that's also really important, you know, this is the thing that I've, I've noticed. Uh, it's hard to take accountability, especially if you're afraid of failure. Because if you're not accountable for anything, if it's everybody else's fault, then, you know, you you don't have the failures. And and I've, I've just been of the opinion my whole life. I've been like, you know what? If I'm going to glory in the successes, then I've got to accept the failures too. Yeah, because the failures make you because you're going to have, I learned, at least for me anyway, you're going to have fucking three or four of them before you get a success. Like, <laughs> it's you a, know, like. A hundred percent. You know, like I. I, uh, I served a mission for my church. I probably got, and I, this is one of the things I tell people when they talk about, even people who aren't Mormon, who don't understand why you'd want to go out for two years and do that. I tell them all the time, I go, I learned so much about accepting rejection out there. Cause you, you know, it just think of it, think of a Mormon mission without religion, take the religion out of it. Right. It's still a, you're knocking on doors, talking you're about selling. You're, you're fucking, selling religion. You're door to door salesman, bro. <laughs> like, well, yeah. That's, if you take the religion out of it, like, really, like, fucking door to door salesman, bro. Yeah, and you sit and there, and could, I've done that. That's one of the odd jobs I've had, so I fucking know. <laughs> yeah, and you you get you know you you probably get two hundred no's to one yes. Yep. You know what I mean? Talk about a a lesson in and not always polite no's either. Right. Um, <laughs> You want to talk about South Sac? I served, I served my first seven months in this area of Indianapolis that was some of the hardest ghetto I've ever been in. And I was like, dude, I, I, I've had, I had guns pulled on me. I had all sorts of Jesus. things. And you know what though? Like, if I just remember thinking, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. Yeah, yeah. So, that's yeah. It's a good way of looking at it. Build that callus. So, so we've, I, I, I usually ask people what their biggest failures are, but we kind of already talked about your rock bottom. So I think we've gotten that, but here's the, here's a question I ask everybody. So one day <clears throat> you're going to pass away, hopefully 40, 50 years from now. Right. Huh? And when you do, there's a funeral and, um, and someone gives a eulogy. What's one thing that you hope someone would say about you, uh, in your eulogy? Uh, I hope I do exactly what that old man said that I did, that I would do. 
and that's to show people that they don't have to stay stuck in their situation if they find themselves in a terrible situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, it's interesting because I recently, you know, I am you're not religious, I am religious, but on that religious note, I recently was reading in this in Matthew uh, chapter five, which is the part where Jesus says, you know, let your light so shine. Everyone's heard that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I know, hey, don't don't like you forget. I went to private Christian school until middle school, okay. so, so you, I, I know a lot. I know a lot. Know, <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, so you know that whole let your light shine, and and Jesus uh-huh. kind of talks about it as as being kind of a candle. Um, you know, um, I don't think it's a candle. I don't think that's right. I think your light is more of a torch that you're carrying in the night, uh, for others to see, and. Uh, we talked about what brings joy and what brings happiness. I think what brings joy and happiness is getting up when you don't want to, doing the work when you don't want to, putting forth the work, wasting and wearing out at your life in that purpose. Because the harder you work, the steeper the climb, the more you live. And that torch that you have eventually in your last breath, you're going to pass it on to someone else. Hopefully for me, I'm going to pass it on to my kids and I want them to know that while I had that torch, I let it burn as brightly as I possibly could till my final breath. Mm -hmm, Exactly. It sounds like that's where you're at, man. And, and the, and the coolest thing about this is, you know, I don't have any kids or anything. I just have, you know, the the communities that I'm involved in. So, yeah. Well, they'll, they'll take that torch and they'll say, Riv did it. You know, the coolest thing about you, dude, is we're finishing this up. The coolest thing about you and why I wanted you were on. I wrote a list when I started this podcast. You were on the list. I wanted you on it. And the reason I wanted you on it is because I have seen over the last 15 years, you grow into an amazing man. Like, it's almost like I thought I saw you go from kind of an immature boy to like, to like. I was. To, to into being an incredible man who can you know who can get through anything i mean to get through that to get through drugs and drinking and doing all those things fighting in war doing all that and going from where you're at where you're not feeling good about yourself you don't have you have an inferiority complex to accepting yourself buying a home getting a masters dude that's that's impressive it really is you're impressive it's shocking. And I hope you know that. So, so I hope that somebody listens to this who's struggling and realizes, dude, you can do it too. Or women, you can do it too. Oh yeah. So Hey, I appreciate the kind of words, man. I'm I'm not uh, at a loss of words, but um uh yeah, it's been a humbling experience and uh yeah. Life is beautiful now. <laughs> That's awesome, man. And, and I can't wait. Your story isn't over, man. This is just the beginning. You're going to get that master's, and I can't wait to see what you do with it. Yeah, after I get that, I, I, I'm I, definitely highly motivated to create something very uh, worthwhile and um, something that matters. So, Well, um, well if people want to follow you, where can they find you? Where on social media? Uh, at Devil May Grind on just about anything. Um, I'm yeah. not really active on Twitter, but everything else, facebook.com slash Devil May Grind, Instagram, Devil May Grind, TikTok, Devil May Grind. Find me and let's link up.
Yeah, man, that's awesome. Well, listen, this is the part where I'm supposed to tell people to subscribe. So subscribe everywhere. I finally got on Apple Podcasts, figured that out. Thank goodness. It was all user error. Congratulations <laughs> on that. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, man. And, and like I said, once you get that master's, you get the next thing. I want to have you back on. I want to hear about where you're going next. Let's keep cool. It going. That'd be great, man. Thank you for having me on and, and uh, allow me to share my story because, um, you know, having it repeated out loud is it's like, oh, cool. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're starting to get a good stride here. Dude, and that's the um, thing, man. Once you have it, dude, you're just gonna you're just gonna ride that wave. Not that you're not gonna have other hard problems, you probably will. Oh yeah, that's just life. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, but you can get there. You can get through it. So, all right, man. Well, we'll appreciate it, and uh, we'll uh, we'll see all the listeners next time. All right. All right. <laughs>